Welcome to Preheated, kitchen wisdom and friendly chat from two friends who love to bake. I'm Stefan Cohn in London. And I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. Every week we celebrate the successes, failures, learning, and laughs that go hand in hand with baking for those we love. And right now is no exception. We've heard you listeners and know you're counting on us to keep the baking conversation going strong, even in uncertain times. So that's what we intend to do. Today, we're up with a review of our copycat Girl Scout Samoas. Better than the boxed version? Then we'll introduce a favorite 1920s dessert, the pineapple upside down cake, this time made in a skillet. Finally, we'll take a deep dive into the food history of the 1920s to discover why innovations in science and technology 100 years ago are still influencing how we bake and eat today. So put the kettle on and get ready for some sweet talk. Stefan, back in March, we had a full month of flower power where we explored all sorts of alternative flowers and new-to-us flowers. Great month. I'm wondering if you recall what your standout new favorite flower was at the end of that month. Oh, it was the spelt. I loved the spelt. Yeah, so silky, so smooth. I remembered how much you loved the spelt. (laughs) And the other day, my husband requested a chicken pot pie, Mm -hmm. and I thought to myself, I bet that crust is going to be really good with spelt. Oh, yeah. And so I am here to tell you, yes, a chicken pot pie made with a spelt flour crust is absolutely fabulous. I will post the recipe on the show notes. I use the recipe from Ina Garten, Mm. the Barefoot Contessa. Yeah. Um, Certainly the pie is not hurt by the stick and a half of butter and (laughs) the heavy cream that Mm -mm. makes up the filling. (laughs) But normally, it's really the filling, at least in my family, that's sort of the star of the show Mm. on the chicken pot pie. Yeah. And in fact, her particular recipe, it has a lot of – the proportion seems a little bit off to me because it claims it makes four chicken pot pies, individual ones. Oh, okay. But I always have enough filling left over to make about 14 more. So So (laughs) is it like soupier, like more like a stew? It's more like a stew. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because she, you do add flour into the filling and you make the roux and it gets really nice and thick. Yeah. And then, of course, it's got, you know, the carrots and the onions mm. and the dreaded peas, which I substituted green beans because I cannot abide by peas. No. You and your pea. <laughs> I your know. Your pea avoidance. But the crust usually is more sort of on the side and I'll often see little pieces of it left on the plate. Yeah. Whereas this time, both my husband and my daughter were like, can I have some more of that crust? Yes. Give me yes. that piece of crust. Yes. Like just going to town on it. And they both really noticed the difference. So that's what I thought was so interesting is I wondered, yeah, I like this, but who knows if other people are really going to be able to taste the difference. And I'm here to tell you they could. I agree, Andrea. And I'm trying to remember now what I made with that right away. And I just absolutely loved it. And you think the same thing that, oh, it's it's just another white flower. How different could that be? No, it really has a distinctive texture, I think. I think it makes things really creamy and soft. And I absolutely loved it as well. And I am subbing it a little bit more these days as my regular white flour is getting a little bit harder to find. So I'm really glad to have that substitute. You know, maybe not as many people out there are hip to the spelt. So if you can find that and want to make a substitute, it's a good one right now. I agree. And you know, Andrea, along those lines, 
uh, here in the UK, one reason we've been given for why that flower is a little bit harder to find right now is not that there's not flower. There's plenty of plenty of flower out there. It's that they cannot find people to put it into bags small enough for home mm-hmm. bakers fast enough. Mm-hmm. So it's really a labor shortage issue right now. And, you know, by the time this episode comes out in the second week of May, hopefully that will be old news and flour will be really well stocked. But I did mm-hmm. think that was interesting. And, you know, don't fear. It's not that there's not the product. It's, it's really a supply uh, chain problem at this point. That makes a lot of sense because I subscribe to a lot of the newsletters of the small flour mills when we went through our yeah. flour power month. Yeah. And Dove's Farm had immediately sent me a message saying, our online store is completely overloaded. Yes. Please don't order anymore. And Bluebird Grain Farms over here in Washington had sent some pictures along with their newsletter. And they basically said the same thing. We've got the flour. We're just backed up. Yes. It's, you know, there was a picture. I think it kind of looked like the dad and the daughter who were in the warehouse by themselves just trying to put things together. So yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's one here in the UK called Shipton Mills, and it's a family-run operation, and they've been running 24 hours around the clock for the first yes. time in like their 150-year history. So yeah. they are still shipping out their bags of 25 kegs of flour, Andrea, which is like 50 pounds or something. It's an insane amount yeah. of flour, but it might come to that. So stay tuned. <laughs> Well, and I could see people joining together, you know, as a group and saying, hey, let's purchase this together and then maybe figuring out a way that they can split that up. I think it's also a sign you and I have always known that baking is a comfort and something to do to relieve stress. And boy, has this shown us that is true for a lot of people. You know, it's been really fascinating. I agree. My feeds are just full of people I never would have considered bakers before turning out, you know, like sourdough or or these yep. different things. People are really drawn to it. And of course, exactly. We've known it. Our audience has known it for for a long time. But it's it's great. That's a nice that's a nice side effect, I think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Andrea, it is our Roaring 20s month, and we are up with the first review of this month. This was a listener-suggested theme month for the 1920s, and it's also a listener-suggested bake, which was homemade Girl Scout cookies. Now, we talked last week that we bypassed doing the original Girl Scout cookie, which was the trefoil or the shortbread, because, you know, lots of people make those already. They're not maybe a stretch for many of our listeners, not so interesting. But we ran across this recipe for Samoa cookie bars from Lindsay at Love Life and Sugar. And Andrea, Samoas are the caramel, shortbread, coconut, chocolate. I mean, (laughs) what else could they throw in there? All of my favorites. All of them. And of course, this is a little different because you're making them in bar form, but that makes them fun as well. So Andrea, you had a cookie base that was flour, sugar, butter, vanilla, and a little bit of water if needed. And you could mix that up in either a mixer or a food processor. And then your topping of coconut, more water, butter, some craft caramels, and semi-sweet chocolate chips. I know we talked when we introed this that there may be some differences of opinion going in, differences of ingredient and what we might have to do. Did you follow the recipe as written? And how did this go for you? Well, it went really great. And of course, I didn't follow the recipe as written. (laughs) 
Um, a couple of changes that I made. First of all, not because of a lack of ingredients, but because of an interest in self-preservation, I decided to reduce the size of this recipe. Yeah. I love Samoas more than anything in the world. Oh, they're your favorite one, right? They're my favorite. Well, until the lemonades came along this year. Oh, those oh are, right. Those are a hot contender for the That's top right. spot. But Samoas have been my longtime favorite. And in fact, one of my few disappointments with the Girl Scout cookies over the year has been how that packaging is getting smaller and smaller. Oh, yeah. oh yeah. So, right. Yeah, more plastic on the inside of that box, I, probably to prevent breakage. But I feel it's uh, shrunk my cookie inclusion mm, down. Mm-hmm. So Cookie to plastic ratio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So... I thought to myself, I cannot make this full nine by nine pan of these bars because I will eat the entire thing. So I did a little math and a nine by nine pan is, of course, 81 square inches. Mm -hmm. And I had a six by four pan, which is my mini loaf pan. And that's 24 inches. And so it's about a third. It's not exact math if you want to check my numbers, but it's close enough. So I cut everything in the recipe in a third. Now that was pretty easy for the shortbread crust. I used a third a cup of flour. A a third of a fourth a cup of sugar is a twelfth a cup of sugar, which is basically a teaspoon. Um, I used (laughs) two. I know, it was very cute. I used two tablespoons of butter. I used just a dot of vanilla extract and I did it in my mini food processor. Now I thought I wouldn't need the water because I had such small ingredients, but I did actually need um, almost two teaspoons of water and this said one teaspoon of water if needed so my crust was quite dry and I needed Mm. something to sort of hold it together yeah I had the same I followed the full recipe and found the same thing I definitely needed that water and I probably went to one and a half teaspoons it was very dry and crumbly and you know just like a shortbread once you start pushing that into your pan sometimes it gets a little bit easier to work with and not as crumbly and that's what happened here as well I did not line my mini loaf pan with parchment paper. I just used my beloved Baker's Joy. And I'm here to tell you that worked out just fine. (laughs) And um, so I used my little mini food processor. I processed all that shortbread base cookie ingredients, pressed that down into the pan. And since I was using a smaller pan, the instructions say bake for 15 minutes. I set my timer for seven minutes and checked it. It was still quite raw looking. I did another four minutes, and that's when it looked more set and the edges were brown. So in the smaller pan, I cooked my base for 11 minutes. And I actually went two minutes longer in my nine-inch square. I went to 17 minutes. And yeah, I think, again, this is just know your oven and check it. On the earlier side, not the later side, you can always go longer, but if it's overdone, you're you're stuck. So um, yeah, just set and lightly browned, I think, is the key there. The bottom is supposed to cool completely, so I set that aside and went to work on the other things. I went ahead and toasted my coconut. So the topping is two cups of coconut, a little bit of water, two tablespoons of butter, 25 craft caramels, and nine ounces of semi-sweet chocolate chips. Mm -hmm. Again, these were all things that were pretty easy to cut in a third. So I used two-thirds a cup of coconut, and I used the sweetened flake coconut, and I browned that in my oven and set it aside to cool, and then... I melted the water, butter, and caramels. Now, I told you last week that I was going to use my craft caramel bits that I knew I had in my pantry. Oh, yeah. Well, have they disappeared? Those have disappeared. <laughs> and when I asked the number one suspect in the disappearance, my daughter, about those, she looked at me like I was insane. And she was like, I ate those months ago. Oh. Like, you know, how, how dare You're you? You're just asking me now. Right. <laughs> 
Right, right. <laughs> uh, I mean, in her mind, that was just proof that they needed to be eaten. The fact that I hadn't needed them for yeah, that Yeah, it had been like six months ago and you hadn't yeah. needed mm-hmm. them until now. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So luckily, I was able to get my hand on a bag of craft caramels. No problem. Um, 25 craft caramels. Of course, I'm laughing that the recipe instructions say wrappers removed. I thought, really? Do they, do they have to tell us that? But you know what? <laughs> you know what they do. <laughs> you just you just never know. You'd feel awful if someone thought you should melt those with the wrapper on. So I used eight of those, and that melted down quite nicely with no problem. Um, you mix the coconut into there and then spread it over your shortbread. I mean, already at this point, it was looking fabulous to me. Oh, yeah. I thought it looked really, really good. Then you sprinkle a little bit more coconut over the caramel mixture, and then let it cool. Um, remove it from the pan and cut it into 16 bars. So. Mm-hmm. I decided that I needed to make a mini size on these. So I was looking at it, and again, at six by four, my first thought was, oh, these would make three perfect bite, you know, nice yes. bar-sized sort of cookies. And then I was right. like, mm, I'm afraid I might eat all three. So that wasn't a good idea. So I cut it into eight, and each one was about, you know, one by one. So it was kind nice. of just the perfect bite size. And then you melt your chocolate chips. Now, oddly enough, I did not have any semi-sweet chocolate chips. So I did maybe what you do normally, which is I melted some milk chocolate with some dark chocolate. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Great. And that's what I did here, as a matter of fact. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and this is the only place where I had a little bit of trouble. So you dip the bottom of each bar into that melted chocolate. Yeah. And... It was much thicker than I would have liked. So I then took a little spreading knife and I kind of tried to scrape some off. Mm. And, um, you know, it even says in the instruction, you don't want it to be a real thick layer of chocolate, just a light coating. But I still thought mine was a little too thick. How about yours? Yeah, and I would say also, I mean, I'm okay with a thick coating of chocolate, so I'm fine to ignore that. my chocolate, at first, it was so glossy and beautiful. And I dipped them and then I flipped them upside down to dry because I thought, if I just put these right back on my parchment, they're going to stick yes. when yeah. I bring them back up. So I just flipped them to the coconut side down while they dried. The first, I don't know, five were just beautiful and glossy. And you know, then as the chocolate's kind of getting a little colder, it's getting a little bit harder to spread. So the last half of them were definitely more kind of chunky and rustic looking, I would say. But you know, I could have just stopped and and nuked it again in the microwave, I suppose. Um, But yeah, I think letting them dry upside down is really key here. I wish I had done that. I flipped mine over, and you're right. When I went to pull them off later, some of the chocolate was stuck on the wire rack. And I, but I thought I needed to do that because I thought, well, I need to drizzle the chocolate over the top of the bar and the chocolate's already melted, so I can't sit here and wait. I had a tough time drizzling. I think at the end of the day, my chocolate was just a little too thick. So I either should have maybe put a little bit of coconut oil into it or maybe, um, you know, something to thin it out a little bit because, I don't know, when you see my pictures, you'll see I have more clumps of chocolate as opposed to a pretty drizzle. None of that affected my final (laughs) evaluation, my review. (laughs) Which was five star, over the top, everything I ever expected. (laughs) My husband came into the house. They were cooling on the sheet. He went to grab one. I said, oh, no, no, I I have to take pictures first. Mm. I've never seen him get sort of angry at me. He kind of (laughs) snapped at me like, well, I... I want one of these. I was like, and and you can certainly have some, but you'll need to wait. 
My daughter came in a few minutes later, saw them. She didn't know I was making them. The recipe was not out on the counter. And she looked at me and she said, Mom, are these Samoas? So she knew. Yeah. Yeah. Really, I feel proud that I've really indoctrinated my child into the Girl Scout cookie world that she knew exactly what it was. And both she and my husband thought these were amazing. I wrote down the reviews because they were so cute. My daughter said, well, of course, she first picked up that they were Samoa. She said they're absolutely fabulous. And then her only complaint was she did feel like the chocolate at the bottom was too thick in terms Mm -hmm. of trying to replicate the real cookie, not in terms of making it not good. Yes. And then my husband said, these are the best things ever. You know, his his number one review. (laughs) Classic. Classic. And he said, it's like a coconut Snickers bar, which I think is true. Now, of course, Snickers has peanuts, but otherwise, I I think he called that one. So our family was very happy. Those eight little mini Samoas disappeared quite quickly. And I'm really glad I only made a small serving. Stefan, (laughs) how about you? It's so funny because it was last episode or the previous one that we threw our kids under the bus and we're like, they never eat anything we make anymore. I know. And mine were gone in like half an hour. <laughs> this was a huge win in my house. And it's so interesting that you mentioned about the Snickers bar because my husband said similar. He's like, this is a t- like a Twix bar with coconut. Yes, yes. And and it has, you know, that that chocolate base and then the shortbread base and then the caramel. Mm-hmm. As you guys remember from last week when we introed this, I cannot get craft caramels here right now. So I used a prepared canned caramel, and that is just looser than melting down hard caramels would be. So I pretty much skipped the step about the melting and the adding of the, the butter and the water. And I really eyeballed, I used about three quarters of a 397 gram can. Okay. And I I did, I added it until the coconut was really nicely moistened and then just a little bit extra. Yeah. But because it was looser in general, I actually made these over two days because I let the caramel harden as much as possible in the fridge overnight one night. I don't think that's probably necessary if you're using the harder caramel to begin with. I see. Okay. But texture-wise, I think it really worked here. Mm. I'm also so happy to report that my son helped me make these. I mean, that was so nice. He was very motivated. He saw all the ingredients. (laughs) He's like, yeah, yeah, I think I could help you with these, Mom. So (laughs) looks like you need some assistance over there. So that was really fun. You know, there is a lot of kind of of preparation and then a wait and then a cool and these different Mm -hmm. steps. And just the days that I made these, I was really into that. I didn't have a very big block of time, but I had a lot of little chunks of time. And it was just so nice to make the shortbread and set it aside, to do the caramel coconut, put it in the fridge and come back to it the next day. Yes. Huge hit, delicious. I made the full-size recipe, which she says, of course, cut into 16 bars. We had kind of laughed last week and said, what's wrong with cutting those into nine bars? You're using a nine-inch square pan. I think it was a little too rich for nine. They were really big at that point. I think you're right. So I cut them again into triangles. I got 18 total, the perfect amount. I haven't had a legitimate Samoa in, what, maybe probably four years at least since we've been here. So I can't exactly recall the the flavor, but whatever you want to call these, call them delicious. I mean, they're fantastic. Big win. 
five stars absolutely with you on this review. Oh, and I just finished a solid two boxes of the actual singles, <laughs> so I can tell you They're fresh that, in your mind. Yeah, these truly are copycat. I mean, yeah. I think the yeah. only thing that was different for me is when I did my mixture of dark and milk chocolate, of course I aired a little bit more on the dark side, and I think the ones in the box are a little bit more on the milky side, but yeah, mm, uh, yeah. just absolutely fabulous in terms of a copycat recipe so thank you Lindsay from love life and sugar this one was a big hit in my household Stefan, I wonder if this week's recipe and bake along is going to be as big of a hit as the Samoa bars we are looking at the original pineapple upside down skillet cake from our beloved King Arthur flower <laughs> and recipe developer PJ Hamill and yeah. we learned about PJ Back in episode 110, mm-hmm. I made those flourless fudge cookies from King Arthur Flour, and it was the yeah. first time I had followed a recipe with slavish devotion from start to finish. <laughs> and of course, they turned out beautifully because I actually yes. followed the recipe for once. And PJ was kind enough to write and say, you know, we shared this within King Arthur and had such fun looking at your description of how you did this. And she's been a friend of the show since then. And so I'm so excited to try her recipe. You know, Andrea, I have such a nostalgia and a fondness for a pineapple upside down cake. It's one of my mom's favorite cakes to make. It's one of the first cakes that I learned to make. It just has that delicious white cake with the gooey Mm -hmm. caramely brown sugar and the pineapple it's a lot of really great flavors it's usually not a complicated cake to put together and then you flip it upside down it's so kind of showstopperish when you do is the only other skillet cake we've done is that tart tatin we did from martha stewart back in season one i think Yeah, that I can remember. And famously, I had a horrible fail with that. So I'm really hoping to redeem myself with this one. And listeners, this is rather straightforward pineapple upside down cake. The difference being that you are making it in a nine inch cast iron skillet. That's a really standard size. If you need to, go ahead and flip it over and measure across the bottom, not the top. That's going to be bigger. But I thought for sure, Andrea, mine was maybe like a 12 inch, but sure enough, it was a nine inch. I think that's really standard. If you don't have that skillet or prefer not to use that, you can also just do a nine by two inch uh, square cake pan. And then Andrea, that gives you your beloved square cake. Yes, but I am definitely going to use the 9-inch cast iron skillet. And when my mother passed away and my brother and I were going through her things, I'm sure many people are looking for things like jewelry and photos and memorabilia. And I can tell you Mm. that I grabbed my mother's 9-inch cast iron skillet. (laughs) And that is what I said. That and her wedding album were the two things that I wanted. And I still remember flying home from New Orleans, and I had that cast iron skillet in my suitcase. And when (laughs) I got home, I had the note that TSA had inspected. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder what they thought about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you probably couldn't have put it in your your, uh, carry-on, for sure. No, no, I think think that would not have gone well through the scanner. No, no, no. It is perfectly seasoned. She used it practically every day of my life growing up. So it's just a a perfect pan. It's beautiful. It's the right size. And I'm so excited about making this. And then when I told my husband what we were making, he looked at me and he said, are you kidding me? That was my favorite cake when I was growing up. Everyone seems to love this cake. Yeah. I don't know a person that doesn't like a pineapple upside down cake. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. You know, 
people are often asking us, Andrea, on the website or emailing us, and they're asking about investment pieces to make or if they need a piece of kitchen equipment. A cast iron skillet is really something, if you don't have one, you can make literally anything in it. It will last you your lifetime. It can go from the stovetop to the oven. It's really, really worth it. I think it'll set you back about 35 bucks for a really nice version and you are set for life. And of course, my husband and I love getting these at the vintage stores. And sure, right. They've gone up in price over the years as people have discovered them. But we no longer have any nonstick cookware. We only mm-hmm, mm-hmm. have cast iron. And like you said, we use it for everything. I mean, yep. it's great for breakfast. It's great for pancakes. It's great for bacon. It's great for sauteing chicken at night. And um, yep. as I'm excited to find out is, is it great for cake? I have a feeling it will be. <laughs> So let's get into this recipe a little bit. Your ingredients are one and two-thirds cup of unbleached all-purpose flour. And of course, we'll stop and have a shout out to King Arthur for putting those weights in with their measurements. That is 200 grams. And you will notice throughout the recipe, those weights are called out. If that is how you like to bake, they are there, rest assured. Baking powder, salt, two large eggs. You are going to separate the yolks from the whites and use them both. Unsalted butter, granulated sugar, milk, and vanilla. And then, of course, your classic topping of more butter, brown sugar, your can of pineapple rings, and then the very delightful maraschino cherries, which always (laughs) make it really look like a beautiful flower or so, so pretty and vibrant with the red and the yellow. So then, Andrea, you are making that rather basic batter of your dry ingredients. The difference here that I notice right off the bat is that PJ asks you to whisk the egg yolks, but then beat the whites separately until light and frothy. Yes. So mm-hmm. that is different. When I've made this cake in the past, I've just used the whole egg and put it right in. So mm-hmm. that is a little bit different. Make sure that you take care with that step. Uh, baking it about 35 minutes, removing, flipping it up, and then that's when you put the cherries in the cake and hopefully turning out a really beautiful cake. I am so excited about this one. I am fortunate enough to have all of the cake ingredients in my pantry and my refrigerator right now. Mm. So I'm not worried about any of that. And then on the topping, pineapple rings and maraschino cherries are not things I typically store. So I did look those up online and I will be able to get those as well. So You know, it's so funny. Pineapple, canned pineapple and maraschino cherries are two things I almost always have. My daughter is a, I know, my daughter is an absolute fanatic about pineapple. And my kids both love a Shirley Temple for kind of like a special drink. So we usually have that in the fridge as well. Well, and didn't you make homemade maraschino cherries your, with your brother's my, recipe one year? My my brother makes them. Yes. Yeah, he makes okay. them. Mm-hmm. I've never okay. done it. But yeah, he does that. And uh, those are a little boozier than the <laughs> version that come in the cocktail tray. But yes. Which actually, that might be pretty good too. Yeah, you could have like take this into kind of pina colada territory. Right. Stand by for variations. (laughs) Well, remember, we will have a link to all of the recipes we've talked about this week. That is the Samoa cookie bars from Life, Love, and Sugar. And then this week's bake-along is the pineapple upside-down skillet cake from PJ at King Arthur Flour. We will link to that in the show notes for this episode, which is episode 176, on our website, preheatedpodcast.com, as well as in our Facebook group. Stefan, we love our food history here on Preheated, so we thought it was only natural to include a deep dive into the decade we're celebrating all month long. 
the 1920s. It was a remarkable 10 years, a decade of decadence, until it wasn't. The party started in 1920 and lasted until the stock market crashed and the Great Depression began in 1929. But in between, a huge wealth of iconic prepared and homemade desserts made their first appearance, helped along by advances in home appliances and packaging. I was really surprised to see the list of all the prepared foods that came into existence 100 years ago. Wonder Bread, Kool-Aid, Quaker Quick Oats, Velveeta, 7-Up, Welch's Grape Jelly, Fleischmann's <laughs> Yeast, Ready to Spread Frosting, Land O'Lakes started. I mean, it reads just like an aisle at any modern grocery store. The staying power of these foods and brands is remarkable, but they came into being at a unique point in time. Canned food took the lead out, literally, and got safer. Cellophane was first used to wrap items at the grocery stores, which started to have wider aisles and a new self-serve philosophy. But it was the introduction of the first home refrigerator, the Frigidaire, in 1925 that was a game changer. Though these new fridges were very expensive, for example, you could buy a Model T for less than a Frigidaire. Wow. Those lucky enough to afford them could store perishable food safely and for much longer. Cooks could also buy these new convenience foods when they did shop, all of which freed the, let's be honest, female home cooks up to try their hand at baking more creatively. Cue the marketing geniuses at the Hawaiian Pineapple Company. Though pineapple had first been canned in 1906, by 1925, it was a legitimate food trend, prompting the Hawaiian Pineapple Company to sponsor a recipe contest for American housewives. 60,000 entries were received, and 2,500 of them were for pineapple upside-down cake. <laughs> now, you may be wondering, how did 2,500 people have the same great idea at the same time? Well, skillet cakes were already popular, so it was just a matter of time until someone added pineapple to the mix, and this recipe contest may have been the catalyst. And by the way, Andrea, the distinctive maraschino cherry addition to the pineapple upside-down cake didn't come along until a few years later, though indeed maraschino cherries were also created in the 1920s. In general, the people of the 1920s had a raging sweet tooth. In the UK, the interwar years are sometimes referred to as the time of cake made possible by cheap and plentiful sugar. Sweet tooths in the U.S. were also aided by home refrigeration. For example, the average annual consumption of commercially manufactured ice cream grew from 1.04 gallons per person in 1910 to 3 gallons per person, nearly triple the amount, by 1929. It's no wonder both the Eskimo pie, Klondike bar, and popsicles were first created during this decade as were many iconic candy bars like Mounds, Baby Ruth, and Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And let's not forget a great lady who was also born in the 1920s, none other than Betty Crocker, who has certainly done her part to help our dessert history over the last 100 years. She was originally created, yes, created, Betty is not a real person, sorry to blow your mind, <laughs> by an advertiser at the Washburn Crosby Co., which later became General Mills. Betty started her career as a home economist who answered correspondence. And speaking of clever advertising, our beloved King Arthur Flower had already been around for 120 years by the time the Roaring Twenties started. But they harnessed the anything-goes mentality of the decade by loading a calliope onto a flatbed <laughs> truck and touring it around New York City where it drew enormous crowds. Aside to advertisers, bring back the touring calliope. <laughs> 
What else were people baking up and eating? Well, you just heard us mention that Girl Scout trifoils got their start in the 1920s, but so did chocolate-covered potato chips. Strangely, the chocolate-covered pretzels didn't debut for another 10 years. S'mores were new. Black bottom pie was invented, which we baked up back in episode 113. Mayonnaise cake, lemon sponge cake, and the cake that was the biggest hit and mystery of the decade, the chiffon cake. Created by a man named, no joke, Harry Baker at LA's iconic Brown Derby restaurant, the chiffon cake was a light and airy cake made with flour, sugar, eggs, and crucially, vegetable oil. It's that last ingredient that was so revolutionary and actually remained a secret until Better Homes and Gardens magazine, which also started in the 1920s, by the way, bought the recipe from the restaurant and published it in the 1940s. Another huge influence on Americans' food choices of the decade was, of course, prohibition. The absence of legal alcohol is credited with giving rise to the popularity of sweet soft drinks, as well as chocolate milk and hot chocolate in the 1920s. But no such restrictions on alcohol were in place in the UK during the decade, and in fact, the Brits could not get enough of dessert cocktails like Brandy Alexander's and Grasshoppers, as well as desserts that could be served in cocktail glasses like the Eaton Mess. Here in our own Roaring Twenties, we take many of these convenience items and desserts for granted. But Stefan, imagine a world without a Reese's peanut butter cup or a chiffon (laughs) cake or an eaten mess and give thanks for the food innovations, technology, and people that helped create them. Thanks also to several great resources without which I couldn't have written this segment. The Smithsonian's National Museum of American History, King Arthur Flower, 1920to1930.com, foodtimeline.com, and foodreference.com. Listeners, what other decades would you like to see us dig into? Drop us an email at hosts at preheatedpodcast.com and let us know. Well, the timer's buzzed and we've got to get the sprinkles on top of this episode. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and next week we'll see if our pineapple upside-down cake was a right-side-up success. And introduce a Canadian heritage pie with the perfect name for our theme this month, Flapper Pie. Then we'll stop at the Intimidation Station to discuss custard and meringue so you can bake along without breaking a sweat. Listeners, if you'd like to get an email and a link to the full show notes every week when our episode is released, subscribe to our newsletter by visiting our website, preheatedpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where we're at Preheated Pod. If you like our show, please rank, review, and recommend us on your favorite platforms. Our thoughts are with you and your families and loved ones. We hope our show has provided a bit of respite when you've needed it most. Until next time, I'm Andrea Ballard in Olympia, Washington. And I'm Stefan Cohn in London. Thanks for listening and sweet dreams. Preheated is written, hosted, and edited by Andrea Ballard and Stefan Cohn in association with 24th Floor Productions. 
Stefan, back in April, we had a full month of flower power. So that was actually in March. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 